The information contained herein should not be considered investment advice. All investments have risks. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon without first consulting your personal financial, tax, and legal advisors. The Benchmark Podcast is affiliated with BCS Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to The Benchmark, a podcast from our team here at BCS Wealth Management. I'm Nick Clay. Today I have with me Nathan Goodwin, Scott Lynn, and John Brandon. Uh, today we're, we're going to discuss uh, kind of a hot topic uh, these days, which is uh, the difference between trading or, or day trading versus investing uh, or long-term investing. So trading versus investing. Uh, the difference is uh, our thoughts on the subject, uh, some statistics that we think are uh, helpful to put things in perspective. Uh, so just to kind of get us started, uh, the difference in trading and investing, what's, what's the key differences or by definition, what's, what's the difference? So, uh, you know, both of these groups, you know, are basically trying to make money. Um, through the world markets, uh, but there's really a, a different mindset that goes with each of those. You know, your investing is really a, a, a well thought out process with planning. Um, you know, looking at, at goals, uh, at the future. Uh, just many things go into that. It's typically you know a buy and hold strategy, trying to reach some goals that you have for down the road. That's trading is. Um, really more short-term, um, trying to take advantage of short-term swings in the market, um, news, um, company-specific news, economic news, things like that where, where um, people are just trying to take advantage and, and make a, a quick buck here and there based on what's happening in the markets. Yeah, so, so by definition, it's kind of a, a short-term strategy versus typically more of a longer-term strategy um, why why would anybody pursue day trading yeah so I think you know I've always kind of had a theory that you know in the short term I think there probably are some inefficiencies in the market you know I think back to you know March of 2020 and you would see the entire market I, mean, I can remember days where the S&P 500 swung 10% in single days which is kind of unheard of uh, really based on not any new information so, you know, I think there are folks out there that are probably trying to take advantage of maybe some of those short-term swings or those short-term inefficiencies in the market. I do believe over the long term, you know, that the market is efficient over the long term. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's folks just looking at, at trying to take advantage of some of those inefficiencies in the short term of the market. And trying to time that is very difficult, but, you know, also I think maybe somewhat understandable uh, that, that folks would want to try to take advantage of that. Yeah, and I, I think I have a different... Uh, a different reason that that makes perfect sense uh, sometimes people think they're smarter than the market or they think very highly of themselves and um you know sometimes they're right you know more times than not i think i think they're wrong you know i think I, when i talk to investors or people that have tried this or are pursuing it you know as kind of a occupation or you kind of see things online and classes and all these different things but I think a problem, uh, you know, I read this in a book that is nothing about investing, but it's more about um, psychology. But it's, you know, it, it's almost like there's uh, these, you know, like gambling gods out there that give you a taste of success when it comes to uh, stock picking or day trading. And, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, is it is it like gambling um, or, or is it not? But it's almost like all these people that I've talked to or stories you hear is that they taste this. They go into this with, um, you know, an idea and they're right and they succeed and they've tasted uh, a little bit of success in making money. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, I can do this. I'm really good at this. And, it, and it's kind of back to that golf or not golf gods, but um, in, investing 
or trading or whatever, it's like they almost want you to succeed early on to kind of draw you into what, what you know, more times than not is a, is a loser's game. And so um, I have that story, you know, early 2000s, working my first job and have um, a little bit of money. And I'm like, hey, here, I, I've got this stock, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend told me about it. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't have a financial advisor, but I knew one. And I said, hey, buy this stock for me, you know. And he said, you're crazy. This is a penny stock. You don't know what you're talking about. And I said, do it anyway. <laughs> so, uh, And I was right. And it went way up in a short amount of time. And then uh, I thought I, you know, was the smartest guy in the room and quickly realized that that, that wasn't the case. Um, so you know, kind of setting the table again by definition, long-term versus short-term. So it kind of seems like investing is more of a, a longer-term strategy where trading is is more of a short-term strategy. So so what's the definition there? Yeah. So, you know, long-term, I think us as a group, we kind of think of that in terms of at least five years, you know? So if you're thinking trying to invest over the long term and let, you know, the market work for you, you know, you needed a, a minimum of five years, um, you know, time in the market to, uh, to be able to take advantage of that. Um, you know, whereas short term strategies, they're really just kind of looking at maximizing returns, you know, maybe daily, monthly or quarterly. And, and again, you know, thinking or hoping maybe to, to take advantage of some inefficiencies in the market, you know, that may or may not be realized, uh, you know, in the shorter term. So is it kind of uh, back to uh, gambling? Uh, is is trading uh, like gambling? Is it like going to the casino? Is it um, you know more of a game of chance? I would say yes. <laughs> All right, John, John's in the yes camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just statistics show that fifty five percent of the time. Uh, on a daily basis, the market is positive, right? So it's like a coin flip. Absolutely, day to day. Monthly, it's sixty. It's positive sixty five percent of the time, and annually, it's positive seventy five percent of the time. So, the longer you are invested, the better chances of success you're going to have. So, in the buy and hold strategy. Yeah. So if you're looking at this like a, a house of cards or a casino, I guess like on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I don't know what good odds are at the casino if there are any, but, you know, I think the house always has the better odds. And I would say they're, um, you know, I think I've read probably um, the best chance that anybody has at beating the house is a little over 50%, just barely, in, in certain things. And you have to, gotta, and you got to be an expert. And so, uh, 55% of days, the market is, is positive. So it's like, and even in the casino, you probably have to play that same game for yeah. an extended period of time in order to reach those favorable odds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, very clearly the longer you're invested, uh, to kind of play on the, this continued analogy, but the longer you're invested, the more the odds skew towards your favor and less towards the house. So three out of four years, the markets are positive, 75%. So uh, really in anything that involves chance or uh, baseball average or whatever, I think that's pretty, that's a pretty good chance of success. Um, so sometimes we get asked about, uh, or you read about, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal just this week, um, computerized and algorithmic trading and uh, how much of trading is done by computers or uh, even, you know, AI these days. I, I don't even know, but I think we underestimate the use of computer in trading. Um, so we looked at some statistics. Uh, the use of computer algorithms has been, uh, or for trading has been on the rise in the U.S. stock markets. Uh, since the turn of the century. And uh, as of 2003, uh, algorithmic or computerized trading accounted for only about 15% of the overall volume or trades in the market. Uh, and as high as 70% or more in 2009 and 2010 was attributed to algorithmic trading. 
Um, so what what is that? Is that is that an investor, a person competing against technology or computers? I mean, what what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what it is, and I think it's extremely difficult for individuals to you know to compete against an algorithm or, or a computer, or a program that's been written, you know, to to try to take advantage of some of these things in the market. So. Couple real world examples that, that I've seen in a former life, uh, I used to, to trade for what would be considered an ultra high net worth individual. Um, and this person, you know, it wasn't uncommon for, for this person to acquire maybe 100,000 shares of a stock. And the way this individual would do that wouldn't necessarily be to, you know, you wouldn't want to put a trade just to, you know, buy or sell 100,000 shares all at one time. That's liable to, to spook the market and, and drive the price either up or down based on if you're buying or you're selling. So this person would maybe instead of buying 100,000 shares all at one time, would buy 5,000 shares and then wait 30 or 45 seconds later, buy another 5,000 shares, wait and you know uh, over the course of several minutes maybe acquire those 100,000 shares. But these algorithms are trained to identify these tendencies um, you know in the market. So it would it would see you know, this person buying 5,000 shares and then waiting 30 or 45 seconds at another 5,000 shares. And it was sort of regular intervals, you know, that he would buy these things at. These algorithms would pick up on that. So say he's buying a stock at $25 and first one gets done at $25. The next one maybe is at 25.01. The next one maybe goes up to 25.10, you know. And so the price, you know, slowly starts to increase on them as the algorithm sort of recognized, you know, what was happening in the market. Um, you know, so that that's one way. That's kind of an extreme example of someone trying to acquire, you know, a, a ton of shares, which isn't, you know, certainly the normal thing to do. But again, just an example to sort of show how these algorithms work. Um, into something I think too that, that our listeners can probably recognize and, and see on a real time basis is to watch any sort of big time news that, that hits the market. You know, when the the Fed makes an announcement or. You know, the first Friday of every month, uh, the jobs number comes out, what they call the non-farm payroll or, or the unemployment figures come out, um, or watch when Apple reports its earnings. And you can see instantly in the market that there's a reaction to, you know, to, you know if, if you're looking at Apple when they report earnings, you know, you, usually it happens right at 4.30 on whatever day they report those earnings. Instantly, the market reacts right at 4.30 as soon as Apple reports those earnings. And that's not individuals reaction, you know, reacting within a nanosecond. That's computer algorithms picking up, you know, it scans the press release that Apple sends out, picks up certain words, and automatically starts trading that stock based on however it's programmed to start to trade it. So for humans and individuals to compete against that on a, on a short-term basis, I think it's just extremely difficult. And, and like you mentioned, Nick, kind of a, a loser's game, I think, in the long run. So, well, and you yeah. picked up a good, a good point about the, Individuals versus, you know, versus the mathematical computer algorithms. You're talking about institutional leverage, also. So when this news comes out, and the market or an individual stock really makes a move, it's generally being done by these mutual fund or ETF holders, not you and I trading, you know, ten shares at a time. That are making the move. Right. So. Yeah. These major trading firms too pay tons of money to have their, you know, their databases set up actually on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange just to reduce that time by just nanos of seconds, you know, to make their trading that much quicker. Um, so all these firms are paying big money, yeah, to have their, you know, um, their, their computers right there actually on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange just to re reduce the distance of the cabling that they have to have for that communication just to get those <laughs> fractions of a fraction of a second, you know, to be that much quicker. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's, uh, you know, on a different level, kind of talking about computers and algorithms, there's, there's actively day-traded, you know, exchange-traded funds or ETFs that act a little bit like mutual funds that are rules-based. You know, if certain conditions are met in the market or with individual companies, uh, they trade. And it's not a human, you know, placing that trade. It's, uh, you know, maybe a team or even AI putting together the rules of the portfolio and says, if these rules are met, this is how, this is how we trade. And so, again, you know, even if you thought you had a great idea, a lot of times it just feels like the market already knows. The market is a little bit smarter. And so, um, 
you know, thinking about individual stocks, you know, you can you can buy individual stocks uh, and invest for the long run, um, you know, but you can always probably more typically individual stocks are uh, if you're trading, that's what you're trading individual stocks or maybe options or something like that. But there's some interesting um, statistics on just trying to pick the right stocks. Uh, and I would make the case whether it's for trading or investing. Uh, so there's a, a book, I think his name is Nick Majuli. Uh, he wrote a book called Just Keep Buying and some interesting stocks uh, that kind of make you think about is this a gamble or not, not stocks, uh, interesting statistics. Uh, so 75% of funds, so think ETF or mutual fund, uh, don't beat their benchmark over a five-year period. So they're not beating uh, basically their competitors. So if a fund's uh, a growth U.S.-based fund and their benchmark that they're, they're, they're tasked to keep up with or beat is the S&P 500, you know, think about it that way. But 75% of funds don't beat their benchmark. And, you know, I think what's eye-opening about this is the people that are running this money in these funds I think, Scott, you alluded to this, but they're professional money managers working full-time, sometimes around the clock with teams of analysts, vast financial resources, um, vast human capital, intellectual capital, and they can't outperform. You know, so it kind of makes you think, even if you're investing in individual stocks, uh, you know, what makes you think that you can beat even the best of the best when, when they can't even beat their benchmarks? Um, and so, you know, probably what's even more interesting is that, you know, part of that research shows a small percentage of individual stuff, only a small, small percentage of indiv individual stocks uh, do well in the long run. So even if you're investing, you know, for the long run, picking stocks is still, still sometimes a hard thing to do. So this, is, this, this was kind of a little bit mind boggling to me, but uh, the best performing 4% of listed stocks can explain the net gain of the U.S. stock market since 1926. So uh, what does that mean? This was a paper, I can't pronounce the guy's name, Hendrik Bessenbender. Uh, sounds like a smart guy, but he wrote a paper, uh, Does Stocks Outperform Treasury Bills? So stocks, you know, relatively risky in some ways, if, especially in the short run, but um, treasury bills are what we call the, the kind of the risk-free rate, you know, very, very, very low risk. Uh, very, very low return. So we all kind of think about the more risk you take, the more reward. So by buying stocks, typically you should have more uh, return. And so this this paper kind of made a counter argument and says just 4% of stocks from 1926 to 2016 created the excess gain for stocks over treasury bills. So um, you could have bought treasury bills over that same period um, and had a really good chance if you were a stock picker on the other side to, to beat a stock picker, whereas only 4% of the stock. So um, five companies basically uh, account for 10% of the total wealth creation. Um, and so some of these names would make some sense, like Apple and Microsoft, uh, maybe ExxonMobil, uh, but the, the other two, GE, is not exactly uh, a household name like it used to be. Um, obviously still is, but is definitely by no means a growth stock anymore. And, and in some ways, IBM, that's, that's the fifth stock. So, so I guess how I would leave that is if you're picking stocks, short-term or long-term, how can you be sure uh, that you're going to pick one of the 4% of stocks that outperforms versus one of the 96% that doesn't? Um, and that kind of plays with uh, you know, behavioral biases as well. Um, I think it comes back to diversification, right? I mean, not just across you know allocation across you know foreign markets or domestic markets or or, or bonds and and stocks individually, but um, just diversification of the market itself. You look back at the S and P five hundred going back to I think you know called the mid nineteen twenties or so to present, on average, it's returned about 7%. Reinvest the dividends, and that return goes up to, on average, about 11%. Um, that's pretty solid for 
you know, a hundred years of yeah. returns, yeah. right? That that, uh, that meets the definition of long term, right? <laughs> <laughs> and successful with that. I mean, if yeah. you get ten percent a year, uh, a year on year on average, then I think most of our clients and and individually we would we would accept that. Um, but you you know, I think diversification is key, and that's kind of what we're getting at with the within the index to uh, invest in an index that um, doesn't have to be actively managed and have a lot of turnover in it. So when we look at active versus passive, there's been a great debate about that as well. Um, you know, in an active fund, um, you know, the, the management is actively turning over funds, buying and selling throughout uh, the course of the day or the holdings in order to try to beat uh, beat its benchmark as well. But the um, a passive fund doesn't do that. Um, it's really set it, somewhat forget it, but it tries to mimic the index that it's benchmarked against. So it's playing for the tie. Playing for the tie, which if you're tying for the S&P 500 and getting you know, 10, 11%, like I said, I think that's be, ultimately a win. Right? That, that, that's right. That's right. Tie, go, tie goes to the runner. Tie goes to the runner. <laughs> Except in Little League All Stars. Story <laughs> uh, for another day. Another day. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but you're getting a, a, be, a better risk-adjusted return, um, and for a lower, lower cost in a passively managed fund um, over the long term. So, um, again, referencing a, uh, another another book, the incredibly incredible shrinking alpha um, and that's where uh, you're seeing uh, active management depends on alpha to have a better risk adjusted return or higher returns up and above the benchmark um, with a passive passively managed fund um, you're not seeking necessarily higher alpha you're just looking for better returns which you're getting in an index yeah. So you mentioned alpha, you know, for, for our listeners, you know, we look at all kinds of different, you know, alpha, beta, we can go down the whole Greek alphabet, standard deviation. But when you mention alpha, what, what does that mean? Well, alpha is the, um, it's excess returns, excess right? returns over risk. Yeah. Right. So if your if your benchmark is the S and P five hundred and it's returned ten percent a year, like the only way that if you're an active manager you're going to beat that or have any alpha is to return better than that, right? That's correct. And seventy five percent of fund managers don't beat don't it, do right, it for a five year time frame. So. Yeah, and so you know I think we take those things into consideration when we're building portfolios, and I think the asset management industry as a whole continues to grow, and there's all kinds of new products that claim that they, at the end of the day, they're going to be better than the next or can beat their benchmark or certain uh, metrics. And, um, you know, sometimes it's two, step back, two, two steps forward, one step backwards. And I think, I think our, our approach as a team is more of a kind of a time-tested, disciplined, what, what has always worked that we feel really good about continuing to work uh, as opposed to kind of what's the latest and greatest you know, idea or fund or strategy. Uh, John, you mentioned you're kind of talking about the long-term returns of, of the benchmarks. So there's a there's a chart that, that we've got uh, that we can share, but it's from J.P. Morgan, and it's, it's basically 20 years of data from 2002 to 2021, and it shows the uh, annualized returns by asset class. And so it mentions the S&P 500. It says, okay, over those 20 years, the S&P 500 has returned about almost 10%, 9.5% a year for 20 years. That would be the benchmark return. Um, other, you know, returns, uh, emerging markets, about 10%. Uh, Real estate investments or real estate investment trusts, more specifically, around 11%. That kind of surprised me, actually. I was a little surprised by that. Yeah. I think that'd be a little different now. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of a new thing, you know, early on. It hadn't been around forever. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, small cap stocks were 9.4%, which historically, in a longer term perspective, are the best performer, you know. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, 20 years is a long data set, but, um, you know, there's obviously longer. But the interesting thing is, is if you had a uh, what we would call a balanced portfolio, if you're a, a very balanced investor or your financial plan calls for uh, not needing to take a whole heck of a lot of risk and you just maybe need returns to fulfill your goals of, you know, six, seven percent. Um, so what, what I tell clients is not overly aggressive, not overly conservative. We're kind of somewhere in the middle. Well, if you had a 60-40 portfolio, which was 60 percent S&P 500, 40 percent, you know, bonds, your return over that 20 year period is about seven and a half percent. So seven point four percent. Um, if you're even more conservative, and let's flip-flop that and say you have 40% S&P 500 and 60% bonds as opposed to 60-40, your returns were about a percent less, 6.4% a year. Um, but the, the kicker in this chart uh, is uh, the average investor. So this chart shows all these different asset classes and benchmarks and their returns. And then it throws the average investor in there and their returns. And so, you know, Knowing all this, the average investor could just say, hey, give me 60% of this and 40% of this benchmark, and they got 7.5% a year. But the average investor made 3.6% over a 20-year period. And so I think that speaks volumes to the average investor. Um, you know, really, if it's not day trading, it's some sort of trading where emotions and behavior have kind of taken over and not allowed for time to do what it historically always has, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, you know, we can touch on behavioral finance, I think, here a little bit. That's probably another great topic for a future podcast, spoiler alert, if, uh, you know, for <laughs> y'all to be ready for that. But I think it's much harder for an individual to remain disciplined to a short-term strategy and, and day trading. You know, we talked about how the market on, on days is just up 55% of the time, so basically a coin flip, um, you know, versus if, if you have some sort of long-term investing strategy or a specific goal over the long-term that you're investing for, you know, uh, I think that gives folks more discipline on, on what the strategy is and what it is they're actually trying to accomplish as a, again, opposed just to trading day-to-day. You know, in my experience too, again, trading with uh, with that individual uh, in, in my previous job, you know, I think this is probably common for a lot of folks too. It's really hard to know when to kind of cut your losses. You know, I think if you if you do day trade, you need to have some sort of hard and fast rule that says, okay, after the stock goes down, whatever, 10%, I'm cutting my losses, I'm getting out of it. Um, that, that tends to be one of the hardest things, I think, for day traders is knowing when to get, knowing when to, you know, raise up the white flag and say, okay, I was wrong on that one. So it's sometimes that's that's hard to admit. Uh, losses tend to hurt, you know, a lot more than gains feel good. Also, I think there's a chart uh, at J.P. Morgan that, that references that as well. It's the, so they call that loss aversion, loss aversion theory, uh, or bias, and uh, it's twice. It's twice as much, I think, is what the statistics are that losses hurt twice as much as what gains as 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 gains feel. Yeah, and that, so that goes into that emotion side of it yeah. also. And I think investors, when they have those losses, you know, maybe there's some guilt there. You feel like you have to make that up quickly. Um, if, if anybody's ever played poker, you know, you recognize a, a player that's sort of getting low on his, his chip stack and, and, you know, they start making kind of some aggressive bets uh, or some, maybe some things they, they typically wouldn't do. That's kind of called playing on tilt. So I think when, you know, <laughs> People are going to think we're gamblers. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think when folks have those losses, when people have those losses, you know, they, they for lack of, I guess, a better phrase, they sort of play on tilt or, or can tend to do that uh, and maybe make some decisions, you know, that they typically wouldn't make. And, and yeah, again, it, it's more emotional investing, I think, or, or emotional investing can take place a lot more in that short-term trading, you know, versus kind of a rational, disciplined, long-term approach where hopefully, you know, uh, you or your advisor helps you make better decisions on, on how to invest and why to be invested the way you are. Yeah, yeah I think people, uh, even people that aren't necessarily, you know, day traders, uh, people that say they're long-term investors, um, you know, it, it, if you're not disciplined and you don't have a good plan in place, you know, the market drops and it's human nature that we feel like I've got to do something. If I'm not, if I'm not being proactive, 
then I'm, I'm not doing what I need to do. Um, so it, it, it's that fight against just your human nature that I've got to do something. Um, even if you technically have a, a long-term plan, and I, I think people, that's another reason why the average investor is so far underneath the benchmark is maybe they're not day trading, but um, a, a market correction happens. Uh, they feel like they've got to get out, and then the market has recovered before they had a chance to get back in. But that that goes back to, you know, being disciplined, um, you know, having a good plan in place and, and, and all those things that we try to help clients walk through. Yeah, say so to your point real quick about uh, having to do something, I had several conversations last year when things were going down and down and down. And the conversation went like this, well, I want to get out of the market, I want to get out of the market, but, you know, our job is to talk people off of that. Yeah. And I said, look, if you feel like you need to do something now, then fine, sell a little bit, don't sell everything, right? And just but stay mostly invested, but it, it just is one of those things, I feel like I have to do something. Yeah, and it's a control thing. You know, if you're doing nothing, you're not taking control. And Exactly. Um, well, yes. and I'll just interject real quick too. I, you know, one thing I've, I've told folks I've heard from someone else is that we don't change our investment strategy based on what the market's doing. We change our investment strategy if our goals have changed. Correct. If our goals do not change, we have a good sound strategy in place, that strategy. So again, that goes back to that long-term investing, um, unemotional type of investing. Yeah. Um, it gets emotional. It's hard to see those losses on your statement, but yeah. It, you know, and we are in the business of providing peace of mind as well. And so, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a balancing act, and I love the way you put that, Scott. That you know, are, have your goals changed? And uh, the you know, when we're putting portfolios together, and I imagine other asset managers, you know, like we know there's going to be volatility. We know there's going to be corrections. I mean, statistically, at least 25% of years are going to be down. You know, we don't know the extent or um, how bad, but you know, we build a plan and a portfolio with that in mind, and you know. When it comes, while it's not fun, we're not surprised. And so, um, you know, even, you know, for folks that are in retirement, you know, they don't have the luxury to go back and earn and save. And so it, it's even more, um, you know, emotional. And so they need even more peace of mind at, at that stage of life. And so, like Nathan said, there's, there's an element of wanting to take control. And, uh, you know, another interesting you know, chart from J.P. Morgan and, and their guide to the markets is, you know, just the impact of being out. So we kind of talk about when things are not going as planned and, you know, sometimes it just makes you feel good to take all your chips off the table. Another gambling uh, <laughs> uh, analogy, but, you know, if, if you're not invested, you can't lose. And so therefore you can sleep at night. And I think that there is some validity to that. And I do think we want to be mindful of, you know, there, there's a health aspect of this, you know, if you stress too much about it. And so that's why we try to be really educational on the front end. But um, so interesting, kind of going back again, another 20 year period, 2003 uh, to uh, 2023, if you were fully invested in the stock market or the S&P, you made 9.8% a year. Um, historically, whenever we have these bad days or, or bad two or three days in the market, uh, they are almost certainly always followed by really, really good days within a week or two. And so by nature of usually when people get out of the market, it's because it's been going down and then maybe it capitulates. It has a really bad day or something. They say, look, I can't handle this anymore. I want out. And inevitably, um, you know, there's good days really, really, uh, you know, right you know, on its tails. So it doesn't mean it doesn't continue to go down or that's the bottom, but so this is really, really interesting. So if that 20 year period, you, you made 9.8% if you just stayed invested in the S&P 500 or even a balanced portfolio that, that we might build, you could be, you know, kind of going back to the other chart, seven and a half percent a year. Uh, but if you just miss 10 days, the 10 best days over that 20 year period, your returns would be almost cut in half, basically go from 9.8% to 5.6%. So if you just sat on the sideline for the 10 best days in that 20 year period, 
your returns are, are slashed. If you missed 20 days, you know, in my experience, people that want to get out, they're not ready to get back in in 10 days or even 20 days. It, it's usually several weeks or mm-hmm. months. But if you miss 20 days, the 20 best days, uh, your returns are now 2.9%. Um, if you missed the 60 best days, so kind of going out to the end of this chart, so basically you sit on the sidelines for you know, what's equivalent to two months. But if you miss 60 of the best days in that 20-year period, you know, you actually, your portfolio actually lost 4.2% a year, which is, um, which is crazy. And so that just kind of, again, what we're trying to point out is investing, we talk about is for the long run. And, you know, there's, there's what I would call only two free lunches in investing, and it's diversification, you know, building a good divorce, diversified portfolio, but also time. And, and you have to allow that time to work for you, but within the constraints of that time, you have to be disciplined. You know, if you've got a portfolio that's going to be that volatile, you know, you got to know that on the front end as opposed to being surprised by that. So there's a little bit of education uh, involved. So, you know, I, I guess um, if you were going to invest for the long run, uh, you know, build a time-tested portfolio, what are your all's thoughts? You know, how, how best do you, uh, you know, build a, a portfolio? Is it active? Is it passive? You know, we've kind of talked about statistically there. I mean, uh, when we talk about diversification, what what does that mean? I think it's it's owning something or a little of everything, right? So it's not necessarily even just owning an S&P 500 fund, but you own an S&P 500 fund, maybe a small cap fund, a mid cap fund, international funds, you know, and then the, those individual funds will each own hundreds, sometimes maybe thousands of different stocks. So you end up maybe with a portfolio of 10 to 15 ETFs, maybe that, you know, you end up owning tens of thousands of different stocks within those ETFs. Um, And going back to that, you know, statistic where what, five companies essentially accounted for 10% of the wealth and what was it, 4% of companies, you know, accounted for all of the, basically all of the wealth creation above and beyond treasuries. So that sort of takes, I think, the guesswork out of it a little bit when you just own everything, right? And just to John's point before, you participate in the market performance over the long term, you know, as opposed to trying to, to pick and choose what to own when. Yeah. Yeah, they have that quilt chart. You, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. 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 Where, you know, it's like last year's winners or next year's losers. And so, you know, there's a line through the middle of it that kind of shows if you just stay diversified and rebalance you do pretty dang good. Yeah. Yeah. All this stuff, it's kind of funny. This is why people like to day trade, right? Like, yeah. well, heck, if I could just pick the 10 best right. days, yeah. you know, I'd be doing really good. Yeah. If I could pick the best <laughs> yeah. sector every year, I'd be really, you know, it's you know, it's greed and fear, right? That's yeah. the two kind of driving forces of the market. And I think that greed sets in a little bit, you know, when we think about day trading to an yeah. extent. Yeah, I think it was 2018, you know, and every analyst and mutual fund and hedge fund and all anybody that was anybody that had a prediction that was worth reading, I think, was do not buy uh, long term treasury bonds. You know, very, very safe, low return investment because we're in this long bull market. And it's like that. Why would you buy something that safe that pays you virtually nothing when things are so good? And, you know, almost like clockwork at the end of the year. Uh, you know, I, I may be wrong on this, but I'm almost positive long-term treasuries were the number one performer <laughs> in 2018. And, and so, that was all rational yeah. thought by us, like, hey, we're in this long-term bull market, yes. stocks always outperform, why would you buy the safest thing, in the, you know? And right. Yeah. I mean, and, and inevitably... Down, the prices of those things went up. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was, and it all kind of happened in a short amount of time. I think it was more it was like, like the last quarter. Yeah, yeah last yeah, part December, of the year. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know... You could have been right for three-fourths of the year, but, you know, again, if you didn't trade perfectly, you know, you, uh, you know, and that, that's another thing. If you, you have to be perfect with this to keep up with the indexes. If you want to get out, you know, you have to time it perfectly to get back in. And it's like I'll tell people sometimes, it's like, well, you got to time it perfectly twice. Like the odds of timing it perfect once are, are very, very low, but you have to do it twice. you got to get in and out at the right times. And so... Um, there's no Hall of Fame for market time. <laughs> no, no. There's there's actually like stories of people that, um, you know, I, I, it was Meredith Whitney. You know, she was a I, I, I do not know exactly what she was, but she was a portfolio manager, I think, uh, real famous for making a call. And that call was 
um, the financial crisis. She called the financial crisis. And she went from a relative nobody to somebody everybody wanted to listen to because she predicted that. And, um, you know, she should have stopped while she was ahead. But, you know, um, and I don't know her. She may be a great person. I, I have no idea. But um, she made another prediction, you know, uh, not, not long after that, was that the municipal bond market was going to crash, you know, amidst uh, the backlash of the financial crisis. And so it caused a little bit of stir in the municipal bond market, but the municipal bond market never once, like, uh, well, in some areas, I, I take that back, in some areas it struggled a little bit, but for the most part was very, very resilient and very, very strong. And so she went from being the smartest person, you know, to like, hey, that was a really bold call that was nowhere near correct. And so I guess if you throw, if you predict enough, at some point you're going to be right. And it's kind of <laughs> like trading. If you trade enough, at some point you're going to be right, and, and there's going to be a little bit of a you know, kind of a, I don't know, Pavlov's dog type reward, but long term, um, it's just, again, it's kind of a, a fool's errand. And so um, let me let me interject something real quick. I don't I don't think any one of us in here, too, would tell people. I mean, we get that there's there's an excitement, I think, to trading. Right. Probably all of us in here to some extent have done, sure. done it a little bit, you know, so. We, I think we would all probably just advise that you not take more than what you're willing to lose or a huge chunk of what your overall net worth or portfolio is, you know, whatever that is for somebody. If that's $10,000 for somebody and they want to have a $10,000 play account, I don't think any one of us would say, hey, you definitely should not do that. You yeah, know, we, yeah. we get that there's, yeah, there's an excitement to it yeah. and there's some fun to it. And I think it helps folks learn the market also, you know, when you're day trading and seeing how a stock reacts to an earnings report or, you know, uh, analyst call or a piece of news that comes out. Um, so, yeah, I think we, you know, probably would be wise to, to interject that as well into the conversation. Yeah. Um, so that's a good point. I mean, I think we've all own or own some individual stocks, which we just and talked about. We trade them frequently. Which yeah. just, <laughs> we just talked about. Maybe. Sounds like, Maybe. sounds kind of personal, John. Uh, you know, but... Uh, I mean, again, there's, there is, uh, I think that it's part art. It's, um, there's an element of excitement, um, you know, but I think you got to be really aware of, you know, what your goals are. And if you're really trying to create wealth long-term and, um, you know, sometimes we'll, you know, uh, we treat every investor, you know, as a unique investor, you know, and not everybody fits in a bucket. And so if somebody says, I really want to do this and, we can find a way to make it work, you know, we'll, we'll do our best. And, you know, my rule of thumb, and I, I heard this somewhere and I don't remember who the smart person was that said this, but I, you know, I call it kind of the 1% rule or the 5% rule. And it's like, Hey, we can put, you know, uh, let's go back to Bitcoin. Everybody wanted to buy Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies several years ago. And so I, you know, I have no idea. I know enough to be dangerous. Um, uh, but you know, some people, uh, wanted to, wanted to own it, and so we found a way to do that. And you know, kind of, we said, "Hey, let's use the one percent rule. Like, put one percent of your portfolio or net worth in it, and if it goes to zero, which it very well could, you know, one percent is not going to change your lifestyle in a negative way. Uh, or if you use a five percent rule, more times than not, a five percent is not going to, you know, cause you to have to go back to work and get a part time job or something like that. But but, you know, theoretically, if it said what they thought it would do, you know, 1% could turn into 10%. And, you know, it could have a positive impact on uh, your lifestyle. And so we recognize that there's uh, an element of excitement to that. And it could be done very rationally as well. It doesn't have to be speculative. It can be, you know, done in a way that can complement your portfolio, I think, for the long run not necessarily for the short run. And so kind of trying to wrap some things up here, uh, you know, some, 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 some statistics on, you know, just time and, um, you know, the volatility of returns. So on one year averages, and again, this is another uh, chart from JP Morgan, but on one year averages, you know, the stock market historically, historically averages can, can be up as much as 47%. It can be down as much as 39%. Um, you know, a balanced portfolio of 50% stocks and 50% bonds could be up as much as 33% in a year. It could be down as much as 15% in a year. So if you're, if you're just kind of playing in short year increments, 
your range of outcomes of investing, whether it's stocks or bonds or a combination of the two is very, uh, very wide. But when you kind of stretch that out a little bit, you know, there's statistics on five years, uh, but let's look at 10 years. You know, over a 10-year period, if, you, if you're invested in the S&P 500 or stock market, you could average 19% a year in a really good cycle, uh, or you could average, you know, losing 1% a year, uh, which is not really going to break you. It's certainly not going to make you, but, you know, you've, you've, you've changed your volatility from about uh, a dispersion of 80% to 20%. And, and all of it is positive for the most part. 20-year uh, rolling periods, and I think uh, Nathan was talking about this earlier, was gonna touch on it in Ibbotson's book, but you know, 20-year rolling period on average, uh, you don't lose money you know, in, in the stock market or the bond market or any combination of the two. Correct. Yeah, so again, referencing the Ibbotson book that we, you know, has all kinds of market st- statistics um, but uh, since 1926, if you look at every possible rolling 20-year period, there's not one instance that any allocation of stocks and bonds um, would have been negative. And in fact, even looking at 10-year rolling periods since 1926, um, if, if you are invested anywhere from uh, 70-30 to 30-70, anywhere within that range, there was also not a single negative period. So again, it goes back to the same story. You said that's a ten-year rolling. So ten-year rolling. So that's nineteen twenty-six to every possible yeah. twenty-seven to nineteen. Yeah, yeah. every possible ten-year yeah. rolling period from nineteen twenty-six to two thousand twenty-three. So, and how many times in that hundred-year history have people thought like this is it? The world is ending. You know, you think about all the events that have unfolted: uh, recessions, depressions, wars. Um, you know, uh, pandemics. Like, I saw something that. I can't remember all the events, but, you know, if you had a crystal ball in the late 90s and you saw all the events that were going to happen, you know, there was, I know, I think a massive hedge fund that collapsed in the 90s. There was, you know, the September 11th attacks. There was a great financial crisis. There was, you know, COVID where the entire global economy shut down. If you had a crystal ball that saw those things, would you have bought stocks? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. You missed a 10 times return. So yeah. if you had $100,000, your $100,000 would have been a million dollars at the end right. of all that. Even this year, I've had that conversation with clients. Like, yeah. like if we told you at the start of this year, what all would unfold just this year, year to date. So if we're what, middle of June, uh, year 2023. I'm going to timestamp this podcast, I guess. <laughs> uh, that out, you know, right? think, think about it. Like, uh, you know, we still have ongoing Russia-Ukraine. We still have ongoing inflation and or the Fed raising rates at an unprecedented pace. Uh, we had a mini little bank crisis, bank run. Um, debt Debt ceiling arguments. Um, you know, up, up until the end, the increase in, in debt ceiling. All these different things. Like, would you say that the stock market is up double digits this year or even close? And, you know... Um, I asked my wife that, who obviously she doesn't pay any attention to it and, you know, doesn't want to. But she's like, I would guess that the stock market is down. And I'm like, yeah. But ironically, it's not. It's actually done very well. And so those are the kind of the things. It's like it's really hard to predict because the market is pricing all these things well in advance. The mar- stock market especially is very, well, the bond market too is, um, they're very smart and a lot of it is very cyclical. You know, we, we go back, it's three out of every four years the market's up. Well, last year the market was terrible. You know, uh, it was down. Previous three years were great. 2018, the next year, you know, previous was, was down. We just talked about it. Previous three years were great. Now, it doesn't always work like that. That'd be an easy game to win. But, <laughs> but still, like, uh, you know, it, it is amazing to kind of think about and how you know human behavior, you know, really thinks it can kind of manipulate that in some way, shape, or form. But um, you know, one other thing. So, kind of just to wrap all this up, and you know, if any, if you all have any kind of closing comments. But you know, the whole idea behind this podcast was um, you know trading versus investing, and so you know, kind of to recap all that trading. Is, is really kind of a short-term game. 
uh, and, and I don't think game is not the right word, but it's a short-term investment strategy. A lot of people do it. Um, more oftentimes than not, it's, it's not successful over the long run like investing is. And, you know, one thing I would say is that the other thing that you got to consider is not just purely returns or losses, but, uh, you know, trading is in, done in the short run, which we kind of talked about, which is day to day or within the year. Most people trade in a taxable investment account. You know, it's not a retirement account. Their employer plan doesn't allow that typically. Uh, sometimes maybe an individual IRA, but, you know, more, more times than not, it's a taxable account, a brokerage account. And so there is a tax component to investing. And so when you're investing and, and you make money and you realize a gain on a trade you've made in the short run or within a year, you know, you're paying capital gains taxes um, at the short-term rate, which is like ordinary income. So you're paying taxes. So if you're really successful at this, you know, half your gains can be cut in half. So you're, you know, you, the, there, there's another force working against you that you don't have, you know, as opposed to if you invest for the long run, you get uh, long-term capital gains rates when you're successful. And so that's typically going to be, you know, 15% or maybe 20% for highest um, tax brackets. So um, there's another component to that that you have to think about that's kind of, uh, I think a lot of traders are, are mindful of, but uh, don't really consider it in what they're doing. So um, you guys got anything else? No, I mean, I, kind of wrapping it all up, like we, we've, we've hit on this a million times, but there are reasons why the vast majority of day traders lose money. Um, there's lots of different statistics you could look at. Most of them, you know, are anywhere in the 90s, 90, 92, 95% of day traders, depending on what you're looking at, are going to lose money. Um, so just keep that in mind, you know, when you compare that with a, a 10 year rolling period where no, no portfolio or, or most portfolios would have been profitable, um, you know, there just there are reasons. There are reasons why the vast majority of people can't do that successfully in the long run. And with that, uh, thank you for joining us, and be sure to tune in next time to the Benchmark, a podcast from the team at BCS Wealth Management. <laughs>